Think. Act. And prosper. You are now tuned into the Money Level Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Money Level Show, where we think, act, and prosper. And today I got a special guest with me. Uh, this guest is the CEO of Morgan Creek Capital. Uh, I've watched him a few times on some interviews and talk about some of the innovative space with the cryptocurrencies and uh, some of his ideas on some of the other bearer assets, investments, and stuff. And so I want to welcome Mark Yusko today. How you doing today? Doing great, Daryl. Thanks for having me on the show and and actually super excited to be talking to someone from my home state uh, up in Washington. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's probably a gift and a curse. I, I live up here, but I'm originally from uh, Oklahoma City. So a lot of people are still kind of sour about the Sonics and and everything. But Indeed. In fact, I, I was just in uh, OKC for a wedding and uh, saw the beautiful stadium and uh, my wife's family from Tulsa. So her brother lives out uh-huh. there. And yeah, I'm still pretty sore about that. I'm a big fan of the uh, the one title we had in 79. So yeah, yeah, that's that's good. That's good. Uh, so um, I just wanted to get a little short background. Um, so you, you came from uh, Kirkland, Washington. Um, I mean, uh, we both know Washington has, you know, a lot of some of the big companies, Amazon, Google and, and a, a bunch of companies. I, I just really just I think I bought a video game yesterday and I saw Bellevue, Washington on the back of it. Uh, <laughs> so I bought it for my son. So uh, could you give us a little more about your uh, background and how you got into uh, this world of uh, finance, investing and things like that? Yeah. So the quick version, although I, I Daryl, I, I don't do quick well, but I, I'll try so the, the quick version is uh, I did grow up uh, most of my childhood, so kind of from four to 16 in Kirkland uh, in a place called Kingsgate and uh, have, have great memories of, of growing up in Seattle. I still consider it home. Uh, still got a couple brothers up there. So uh, I left uh, and went to three different high schools. So I, I hated my parents for that, that period of time. I went from Blanchett High School uh, near Green Lake to a school in Connecticut and then down to Houston, Texas for uh, my last semester of senior year. Uh, ended up going to Notre Dame, wanted to be an architect. That didn't work out exactly the way I wanted. Uh, so I ended up graduating as pre-med, decided not to go to med school, which I should have done before I took the MCATs instead of taking the MCATs. It was a horrible experience. Uh, went to business school in Chicago took the first job that was offered. And I would say my life is just a series of happy accidents. And others would say maybe it's divine intervention. But uh, the guy who was doing investments at the insurance company I went to work for retired. And so I I got to do some investing there, mostly in the fixed income markets. Then I went to work for an equity firm, actually the first quant shop. There were two professors from Northwestern. They were using the VAX computer. This was pre-PCs. You know, it's funny, growing up in, in Seattle, I always, I always make the joke that, uh, you know, most of my friends don't work anymore, right? They were smart enough to go to work, this little, work for this little company called Microsoft. Although to defend myself, I would say, if you've ever seen the original picture of the Microsoft 11, you'd forgive me because they looked a little rough. Although we all looked rough in the 70s, the clothes were, were not good. But uh, <laughs> I would say they looked rougher than most, but I didn't do that. And uh, I worked at this, this firm that, that used a computer to screen for stocks. And we had an edge in that 
we got the tape four days before everybody else. We were the first uh, customer of CompuStat and uh, we'd run screens and, and had a little edge in, in buying value stocks. So then I got the call. And for sports fans who remember, Lou Holtz was at Minnesota, had a lifetime contract and less Notre Dame called, Notre Dame called, he left. I kind of had the same thing, alma mater called, went back to Notre Dame, worked in the endowment office. And I kind of had the aha moment, one of the two or three aha moments in my life that you know, investing was not about picking stocks and bonds. Investing was about asset allocation. You know, are you in stocks or bonds? Are you in commodities or currencies? Are you in international or domestic? Are you in emerging markets or developed markets? Those are the things that drive returns. And uh, so I spent the rest of uh, my career in that, what I call the middle stage, chapter two, working for not-for-profits. I worked five years at Notre Dame, then seven years ran North Carolina's endowment. And then I had uh, another aha moment in that uh, I got uh, called away by some wealthy families to start a business called Morgan Creek. And we bring the asset allocation model, that endowment model of investing to other investors. Uh, that has been a, a great opportunity uh, for us to, to build that over the last 17 years. And eight years ago, I told you I don't do short well, but eight years ago, I got exposed to digital asset world through a friend in San Francisco. And I was too stupid to get it, to be quite blunt and honest. Uh, I joke, I wasn't running drugs on Silk Road, not a cryptography student in 2013. And he was starting a Bitcoin fund and a blockchain infrastructure fund. And I didn't get Bitcoin. So I bought the blockchain infrastructure fund. That's done great. It's up like, you know, 11x. But I should have put the money in the Bitcoin fund because that's up, you know, 370x. But I didn't. And uh, in fact, I wrote a letter to my clients a year later talking about Bitcoin as a special situation. And they literally said they'd fire me. Said, stop talking about magic internet money. That's stupid it's for drug dealers and terrorists. And we don't want to hear about it. Now, the funny thing is the next paragraph is about Saudi equities, which is probably more objectionable than Bitcoin at this point. But no one complained about that. And so uh, fast forward another year, told my son to go work at Coinbase when he's graduating from Notre Dame. He's like, I don't know, dad, maybe it'd be a big thing. I'm just going to go for KPMG, gets me to San Francisco. Now, we got a, a chuckle when Coinbase went public. He's like, all right, fine, Dad, you were right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell. I told you to go to work at Coinbase, right? He's like, yeah, but you didn't lever up the house and put on Bitcoin. I'm like, oh, you little. Okay, yeah, that's right. That's true. So finally did get around to, to getting involved in the markets in 2016, 17. Uh, kind of went all in, had that aha moment. I actually couldn't make this up, literally behind the wheel of an RV in Eureka, California, had the Eureka moment that blockchain technology was just an evolution of technology. And it was going to be the operating system for the internet of everything in the future. And that Bitcoin was the rails on which all this was going to happen. So for Morgan Creek Digital, uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Morgan Creek Capital in 2017, we've raised a series of investment funds. Uh, on our third fund today, have made some really nice investments in companies like Coinbase and and uh, BlockFi and and others. Uh, have owned some Bitcoin here and there, and uh, done well for clients. And it's been been a blast. So that's the the almost short version, but not really short. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's good. It's good to get all that background because uh, you asked you answered a few of our questions. Uh, so um, 
that's that's good to hear. Um, you know, and, and I've heard you talk um a little bit about uh Web 3.0. Um I, I went and did some digging on that. I heard about it a few well, I think a few months ago and I was like, okay, what is this? And I'm trying to like understand it and stuff, but then like you articulated really well to where I was like, Oh, okay, now I was able to grasp that. And so for my audience, can you talk a little bit about uh, web 3.0 and uh, and how uh, the web has evolved from web 1.0 to now we're into this new yeah yeah look it, it's such an important question and and I'm glad you you bring it up Daryl in the sense that you know this evolution of technology I talk about has really you know been part of my life since the very beginning my dad uh, installed IBM mainframes you know back in the 50s and 60s and in 1954 right only governments had computers. And suddenly these companies like Deck and Wang, my favorite name, uh, you know, got created. And from 54 to 58, you made a lot of money investing in mainframes as computers went from governments to, to big companies. You had to be a big company because they were expensive and they were huge. I mean, bigger than probably a building in many cases. Uh, and then 14 years later, there was this innovation around the microchip. And the microchip created a whole wave of miniaturization. Now, it still wasn't small. I mean, we had microcomputers. They still took minutes to boot up, uh, and they weren't that powerful, but but they were better than the mainframes. And companies like Intel and Fairchild and, and others uh, created this wave of innovation. And uh, then in 1982, 14 years later, now why it's always 14 years, I haven't actually quite figured out. It has something to do with the creative class being young people. All the great innovations come from young people. Um, you know, Mark Andreessen, you know, was 19 when he invented Mosaic, for example. Uh, so uh, if you think about what happened with, with PCs is, you know, Steve Ballmer's mom famously quipped, you know, honey, why would you go work for that company? No one would want a computer in their house. He has 18 billion reasons he was right, mom was wrong. And, you know, here we are talking live on, on computers over the net. And that was the big innovation, this, this web. So, you know, DARPA was out there and, and the, the government had these nodes that they would communicate uh, using these, these protocols. And there was this one called TCPIP created by Vint Cerf in the 70s. And there are a lot of protocols trying to compete for how we sent information across the internet. In fact, it's funny, I was watching this show uh, on TV and I can't remember the name of it. It'd be a better story if I could remember the name, but it's a, it's, it's, the whole thing is flashbacks. And there's this one scene, it's a flashback to the 70s, and there's this guy and his wife's yelling at him because he's working too late and he never comes home to have dinner with his son. And he says, honey, I'm, I've got this algorithm and I'm on the verge of being able to send a picture across a computer. <laughs> and really now here we are using Zoom to do video in real time across the computer, which then packetizes all that information, sends it across the wires, puts it back together. And I can't actually tell you how TCPIP works, but this thing TCPIP that Vince Cerf created, this guy, Tim Berners-Lee came along and he created the web, right? He created the, mark, the, the, the internet, and is it not Al Gore, right? He took TCPIP, he wrote a web page and 9,500 lines of code, and we were able to create the World Wide Web. And today we have billions of web pages from that single page in 1991. And I always say, you know, the funny thing is Tim Berners-Lee did not get rich, right? He built the internet or created the internet, but he's not a rich guy. Now he is putting those 9,500 lines of code into an NFT, and Sotheby's is gonna sell them for a lot of money, so he'll, he'll, be, he'll be doing fine. 
But what I love about that is that was web 1.0 and web 1.0 was companies like Microsoft and Cisco and Intel and we created lots of wealth. And the way to think about this, if you take an X, Y axis, you take a parabolic curve in the Northwest quadrant, the left hand side of that curve is that period of time web 1.0 and the area under the curve between the curve and the X axis is the wealth that was created. Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, I mean, big companies, real money. Okay, but then this web is created. 1996, uh, we invested in this little company called Google. We put half a million dollars in when I was at Notre Dame, turned into 200 million. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And companies like Google and Amazon and eBay and, and this web 2.0 started to be created. And the, the curve starts to slowly turn up in parabolic growth fashion. And that area under the curve is bigger. Right, We could do more because computers were better and they were faster. And then we got broadband. You know, Pets.com and Chewy.com are the same company, exactly the same. But one is considered the epitome of failure and the other is a $20 billion company. They're the same company, but one was just too early. Pets.com was too early. And Mark Andreessen famously equipped all the ideas that crashed in 2000 and 2001 were right. They were just early. We needed broadband and we needed infrastructure and delivery infrastructure. And so fast forward to 2010, the mobile net comes along and suddenly we've got these, you know, we've got handheld supercomputers. People call this a phone. No, this is a supercomputer. This is a hundred times more powerful than the first computer I bought from Michael Dell from his dorm room, literally from his dorm room at University of Texas in a thing called PCs Limited. And this is a hundred times more powerful. And today there are 10 billion of them connected around the world. And so now we're migrating to a connected world. And in 2024, we'll have the decentralized connected world and we'll have hundreds of billions of connected devices and everything in the world from cars to refrigerators to phones to everything in our world will be connected and it'll all be powered by blockchain. Blockchain becomes the operating system for this internet of everything. And web 3.0 is the right-hand side of that parabolic curve where we go parallel to the y-axis and the area under the curve becomes massive. So the wealth creation opportunity in web three is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, very important uh, because, uh, you know, we, uh, especially getting into this crypto space, like uh, when I initially started my channel, uh, it was a lot about, you know, gold and, and um, you know, stocks. You know, I focused mostly on those areas. And then um, and then uh, I got into started getting into cryptocurrencies and learning a lot more about them and uh, and just how important it is. It's more than just a, uh, you know, a bet on the price to go up or whatnot. It's, it's actually a lot of a lot of different components to it. When you're talking about the blockchain technology, uh, you talk about the humanitarian side about it. Uh, a lot of people being unbanked. And um, and not having uh, access to the S and P five hundred yeah. to beat inflation yeah. and things like that. Actually, yeah. well, I think look, I might have got that from you. <laughs> I think I think you bring up so many good points, right? And 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 you talk about about money, and money is this this thing that you know we all work for it. We all want to have more of it. We all want it to work for us, right? The greatest thing in the world is when your money is working for you when you're sleeping. And so this idea of investing and investing broadly is really important. And as an investor. There are only four things you can own. You can own stocks, you can own bonds, you can own currencies, and you can own commodities. That's it. 
And what we're talking about now is this transition from the analog world. We used to have analog stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, literally physical pieces of paper. We literally used to have dollar bills that we would hand people. No one uses them today. In fact, 92% of currency is electronic. So we went from the analog world to the electronic world, and now we're going to the digital world. So we will have digital stocks, digital bonds, digital currencies, digital commodities. We have a digital commodity today. That's Bitcoin. It's the digital version of gold. Why is gold so important? Gold is the only real form of money. It's the only asset that exists in the absence of a liability. All other currencies have government liabilities against them. They're just a form of debt. Now, gold has been money for 5,000 years. And that's why as a store of value, it has been unrivaled until the digital age where we could create an asset that is just as scarce because what makes an asset a good store of value is its scarcity. You can't create more of it at a whim and therefore it is stable relative to the constant devaluation of currencies as governments create more and more money in their mind, currency, which is actually just debt, they devalue their currencies. And if you look over the history of time, there have been 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them no longer exist. The Roman solidus at one time was the most powerful currency in the world. Now you can buy one as a trinket in London, in uh, Italy because you know it's worthless because the government got too far in debt. In fact, if you read stuff from ancient Rome, it was like it was written last week. They talk about governments being crony capitalism and having too much government uh, largesse and spending and nobody wants to work and you're going to pay people to stay home. All the things that we talk about now were happening 2,600 years ago. It's crazy. And so there's nothing new in this world. So as we think about the digital age and why digital assets matter, ultimately every asset will be digital. Every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every everything will be digital. And owning those assets, stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities in digital form will be second nature to everybody, just like owning an electronic form is second nature versus analog form 100 years ago. But the key is the innovation of these technological evolutions creates opportunities for wealth creation. So as we go from you know no computers to mainframe computers, to microcomputers, to personal computers, to network supercomputers, to ultimately a global supercomputer where everything's connected 24 seven. I always use this example from Rod Collins. So he says, imagine a world, you're in the back of your autonomous vehicle, you pull into the charging station. It won't take two hours, it'll take two minutes to charge. And you won't get out of the back of the car to put a plastic card in the machine. How stupid is that? No, the car will pay the machine using crypto, just a cryptocurrency, cryptographically secure medium of exchange. Then it'll pull away. You'll get stuck in traffic. In Seattle, you know all about traffic. And or actually, you're up in Bremerton. But in, in Seattle, you know all about traffic. And instead of sitting in the slow lane, you won't get into the fast lane and have the camera take a picture of your license plate and get a bill in the mail. Ridiculous. right? The car will actually pay the lane to go in the fast lane. And then hopefully I will get the Waze premium and it'll send me on the fast route and everyone else on the slow route. No, I'm just kidding around. Um, but all of this innovation around payment systems is, is here and it's coming and it's why integrating digital assets into your portfolio 
is so important. It's why my hashtag on Twitter is get off zero. Zero exposure to a diversifying asset is wrong, right? Zero exposure to gold is wrong. Zero exposure to international stocks is wrong. Zero exposure to high yield bonds is wrong. Having some exposure to uncorrelated assets decreases the risk of your overall portfolio. That's why asset allocation matters than security matters matters more than security selection. But digital assets give you the ability to further and more broadly diversify your portfolio and have it be more active over time as we get into areas like DeFi and smart contracts and constant and continual rebalancing. So all kinds of things to unpack depending on where you want to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, so what what are some of the um, so with Web 3.0, you know, it's, it's pretty much here. I know like certain things with NFTs, live videos. I mean, now I mean, I do real estate, too. So, I mean, you can go view a home, you know, 3D, you know, so it's at 3D is here and, and a lot of other things are coming. Uh, so what, what are some of the coins that, that you kind of look at and, and how they apply in web 3.0? Uh, cause a, a lot of people would say, well, you got, uh, you know, Shiba coin or Doge coin or, or some of these coins that are like, you know, are, is this going to be here in 15 years? Like we know for sure Bitcoin and I, I would say Ethereum is, is, is going to be here. Um, and then, um, but you know, those are kind of expensive. And so like some of my audience, you know, they're like, oh, well, I can't pay half, most of a Bitcoin or whatever. Like, hey, you know, I tell them to try to average in or whatnot. But what what are some of the some of the coins you're looking at uh, for Web 3.0 and, and what role they'll play? Well, the most important thing to think about with with liquid protocols or, or tokens or coins is how they fit in this technology stack of the future. You know, if you think about the early days of the Internet, there were 80 internet protocols, eight zero. And today we have five. We basically have TCP IP, which is the base layer. We have FTP for files. We have uh, SMTP for uh, email. We have HTTP for websites. And then we have www. that ties everything together. Now going forward, I believe that Bitcoin will be that base layer protocol uh, in Web3, just like TCP IP is the base layer today. I think uh, Ethereum likely is the www dot, which is the you know glue that binds, that creates its toolkit for creating other applications on top. And then I think we have Filecoin for FTP. And then I'm not sure about SMTP and HTTP. I think it's probably Cosmos and, and uh, Polkadot, but maybe Solana comes in there, but there'll be two or three other protocols in the middle. So I think all of those are, are really, really compelling. And, and everyone should have exposure to Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, probably Polkadot, probably Cosmos. Uh, and then, you know, I think Filecoin is, is something that the people should have a piece of too. Then you've got all these utility tokens. And the problem with the utility tokens, 98% of them are going to zero. And all they are were literally, you know, uh, crowdsourced venture capital. And this is all of the, you know, in the vernacular, the shit coins. And most of them you should just stay away from. Uh, now, if you're a techie, right, if you understand technology and you can differentiate between somebody who really has an interesting project and actually gives you through the coin a share of cash flow, a share of equity. I mean, Ave is a great example, right? Ave, the users of Ave, right, a decentralized finance 
peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending protocol, you actually share in the revenues generated by the users of the platform. That is a real token. I would own that, right? Compound, a similar thing. But there are lots of things like Doge, run away, run far away. That it's it's got zero value. It's it's a joke. I it, it's Doge is everything that's wrong with the markets right now. We gave people free money. We locked them in their house. We said, you can't go to Vegas. You can't gamble on sports. So why don't you gamble in the stock market or in crypto? And so they started buying GameStop, AMC, and Doge. And it's ridiculous and it, it makes me angry. But uh, I would stay away from, from that kind of stuff. And I would focus on DeFi protocols where you're building out decentralized finance. I would focus on the core protocols for the Web3 and then on occasion, you might get involved in, in a really compelling project. And there are some interesting projects around NFTs, a uh, thing like foundation. There are some interesting projects uh, around you know, tokenization of other assets like real estate or art or fine wine. But ultimately, the core protocols to me make the most sense. And, and to your point, the way to do it, don't buy it all at once, buy some every day. So I was on CNBC you know, last year sometime and, you know, Bitcoin had crashed from 10,000 to, to 8,000, literally while I was on the show. I'm like, well, what should we do? I'm like, buy it. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It just went down. I'm like, yeah, buy it today, buy it tomorrow, buy it next week and the week after and the week after, because you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy infinitesimally small down to one Satoshi. There are 21 quadrillion Satoshis, right? Yeah. 2.15 to the 15th power Satoshis in the world. You do not have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You do not have to buy a whole Ethereum. You can buy fractional pieces. And all that matters is not the daily price. Price is a liar. Price of anything, of any asset, is just what two people decide to exchange a small amount for. But value is what accretes over the long term. And so what you want to do is own a piece of these networks. These are the most valuable networks on the planet. They will continue to be the most valuable networks on the planet as we migrate into this decentralized world and we start merging with the metaverse and all the things that are coming in the future. So ownership in the networks is the most important thing. And again, since we're talking about Washington State, you know, Amazon's the perfect example. 24 years ago, you could have bought Amazon at the IPO, like Jeff and his mom and dad, uh, but hardly anybody did because they didn't get it. Right. He was a bookstore. Well, what do I need to order books online for? Well, no, he had a pretty big vision. Now, the crazy thing about Amazon, it has the same volatility as Bitcoin. 80% volatility long term over 24 years. And over the 24 year period, Amazon has gone down double digits every single year, including this year, every single year of 24 years. The average drawdown is 31% five times more than 50%, twice more than 90%. When was the right time to sell Amazon? That would be never. But who bought it 24 years ago and holds it today? Jeff, his mom, his dad, and his ex-wife. That's it. And I'm sure there are a couple of Amazon early investors, but not any investor I know had the temerity to just keep acquiring ownership of that network. Because Amazon is not a company. It's a network. They don't make anything. They match buyers and sellers and take a cut. It's a really good mm -hmm. business model, incredible business model. He's a visionary, incredible, right? 
but it's not a company the way we think of old school companies with property, plant, and equipment, and all the stuff that matters. What matters is the network value of having more and more people engaged in the network. And that's how networks work. And you want to own networks and you want to buy them consistently over time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, so some of the things that I've been kind of, uh, you know, just kind of finding, uh, discovering what's the difference between like, you know, physical gold and, and Bitcoin. And one of those things is like, Okay, you know, say like you have power outages and stuff. And and I had someone mention this in the comments recently, you know, well, what happens if there's a power outage, you know, such as like uh not not even just Bitcoin or uh the CBDCs that are coming. And you know, I kind of just went and did some research and was just like, okay, like what's the likelihood of a worldwide, you know, power outage or things like that? I think the biggest one I saw was in India where um uh almost a billion people were affected. Um, but to my understanding is, is that the internet is always going to keep going, uh, whether, whatever part of the world that you're in, you know, um, unless, unless we, we have just other chaos. I mean, and it's good to have gold for that insurance or for the preservation of what, and the physical properties of gold make it an amazing disaster hedge, right? There are lots of stories. People, you know, escaped the Holocaust or escaped war and famine by having gold earrings or gold coins that they could, you know, get across the border. Absolutely. Everyone should own a little bit of gold and you should even have some that's physical, but here's the problem. If you own bars, you don't want to keep them in your house. So you keep them in a bank vault. Well, if the power goes out, you can't get to those either. So you can't get your Bitcoin. You can't get to those. If you have coins, you can keep some around the house. Um, but then, you know, they're bare assets and they get lost, they can get stolen. So, so there's some risk, but having some gold makes perfect sense. But here's the thing, look, we had a, a ice storm here a number of years ago in North Carolina, and we didn't have power for seven days. And I realized a couple of things. One, power, electricity might be the greatest invention ever. I mean, fire's up there and the wheel's up there, but electricity pretty much powers everything we do. And mm -hmm. without it, you are kind of out of luck. I mean, the house starts to get cold, the stores can't open, you can't get food. So seven days, you realize, the second thing I realized is how close we are to the edge of chaos, right? By the fifth day, that house is really cold. By the seventh day, you're starting to run out of food. Now, thankfully the power came back on and everything was fine, but at seven days, that's kind of the edge. And so this idea that we're gonna have a Mad Max kind of catastrophe, if we do, you'll have a lot worse things to worry about than where's your money, right? You'll be worrying about starvation. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen the, the video of, there were these two families stuck on roofs during Katrina, you know, the, the flooding. And they, the helicopter mm -hmm. throws this thing of water. And it was a, a white family and a, a black family. And the two guys start swimming, the, the patriarchs start swimming and they get to the water and they're like beating on each other. And it was just, oh, look at the racism. I'm like, that is not racism. That has yeah, nothing to do with race. That has to do with survival. survival. Your survival instinct when there's water in your families, doesn't matter if the guy was white, yellow, green, purple, doesn't matter, right? You're going to do what it takes. And so survival is a really important thing. But this idea that, that Bitcoin's bad because it's electronic and digital versus pure physical, nonsense. 
should we have some physical asset in our portfolio that, that we can get to? Like I have a little bit of paper currency in my house, right? I have a little bit of gold in my house, not tons. And I don't want people to come rob me, but yes, I own a little bit for that emergency, but most of my life is done electronically and digitally. Yeah. 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 I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, so what what happens after the next uh, having cycle with Bitcoin? What what do you do you feel like? Um, I mean, obviously we see that every time we have this having cycle, um, the the price of Bitcoin gets um, more and more uh, pricier. So that's why I've been telling people like, hey, get in now. I mean, I was buying in at I think it was seven thousand last year, and I sold it like a chump. I sold it like a chump. I was like, man, why did I do that? Now now I'm thinking about it. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but. Um, but what what do, you, what do you think is going to happen? Like, what's your price prediction, especially after this next halving cycle? Yeah, look, I, my my view on on Bitcoin is is the Bitcoin network, the value of the network follows Metcalf's law, right? And Metcalf's law just says that the network's value will grow in proportion to the uh, inverse of the square of the number of users, and that's a very powerful thing. Exponential growth is something that the average person just can't deal with, right? If I say what's two times two, remember it says four, right? If I say what's 17 times 23, I'll wait. That's the, that has been proven to be the limit of human intelligence. The average human can't do that without a calculator. So how are you at nonlinear logarithmic regression? Horrible, right? See, if I take 20 linear steps across my office, I get to the other side of the office. If I take 20 exponential steps, I go around the world twice. So exponential growth is just incomprehensible to most people. So this, this idea that, that we can know with certainty what the value of the network or what a Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else is gonna be kind of crazy. Now, what I can tell you is we do know with certainty that every year for the next 140 years, we know how many Bitcoin are gonna be created. We know what the block rewards are going to be. And therefore, if you think about the cost of mining, right, in terms of what the costs that go into mining, you can get a sense for what the rewards need to be. And you get a sense for what the uh, price of Bitcoin needs to adjust to. And if you look over the long term, it follows that Metcalf's law curve, that parabola, very closely. And so I really do believe that, you know, we will see $100,000 Bitcoin sometime over the next, you know, probably 12 to 18 months. I think over the long term, we hit uh, gold equivalents, meaning we, we have the network value equivalent to the monetary value of gold, which is about $4 trillion, should be about 5x from here. So around, you know, somewhere in the $250,000 to $300,000 range. Um, and that happens sometime over the next three or four years. Does it happen with the next halving cycle? Most, most likely. I mean, I think between now and the next halving cycle, I think it's going to be difficult to have a, a really protracted, uh, a really vehement bull market because we, we had a big spike uh, at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. Uh, a lot of people came in and they levered up and those levered speculators got you know, trashed with the Elon FUD and the ESG FUD. And I think that now is unwinding probably sooner than it was supposed to have. Probably should have lasted through through the fall. Um, and I think we could we could 
move up slowly between now and the next halving. That's possible as well. But I think all that really matters is the long-term terminal value of the network is going to continue to increase. As long as more people use it, as long as more talent comes into space, as, more as, there's, as long as there's more adoption, and as long as you know, we, we think that the blockchain as a operating system is likely to occur, which I think is, is guaranteed, then these assets, these digital assets are going to continue to appreciate, but they're not going to be a straight line. They're going to have volatility. And the way to deal with volatility is to size the position appropriately. Don't make it all of your portfolio. Have it be single digit percentage of your portfolio. If you're younger, maybe you can get to double digits, but you should have in your portfolio and you should constantly buy it when it dips and you should hold it as a core asset in your portfolio and not think about it as spending money, right? It's like gold, it's like silver, it's like fine art, it's like collectibles. It's something in your portfolio that's supposed to accrete value over decades, not months and weeks. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, when when you mentioned that, I was uh, I was kind of uh, smirking because I um, I was thinking about Lindsay Lohan when she was uh, promoting Bitcoin recently. I was like, everybody, you know, everybody's t- telling everybody that they need to get some. They need to get some. So if you got Lindsay Lohan telling you you need to get Bitcoin, now you got intelligent Mark Yusko telling you you need to get Bitcoin. So uh, Mark, I want to appreciate you for coming on the show today. Um, and where where can people follow you on Twitter, connect with you, or whatnot? So um, I'm easy. I'm just at Mark Yusko. So M-A-R-K-Y-U-S-K-O. If you want to come to our website, which is morgancreekcapcap.com. We've got some resources there. Uh, We've got a YouTube channel uh, around the world with Yusko, uh, where I've posted a lot of stuff on traditional assets as as well as digital assets. And uh, I'm pretty easy to find. I stink at email. I'm pretty good at DMs on Twitter. And uh, enjoyed spending time together and uh i really appreciate the chance to to talk with somebody uh from from bremerton especially in the in the sense that uh, marvin williams got married this past yeah. weekend uh very yeah. famous bremertonite and uh it was mm-hmm. kind of interesting we we're just reading about him and talking about him this weekend yeah yeah i was i think i was a freshman uh or no i was a sophomore his senior year so so, yeah, so I, I didn't know him too much, but I was, uh, you know, I, I was kind of like a short kid and he was super tall. And I was like, I was like, he, like no, no. He, he is the best. <laughs> Not only is he a great basketball player, but he's just a great person. And mm-hmm. uh, he's everything that's right with Carolina basketball. And I'm really excited for he and his bride uh, as they got married this past weekend. There's some great pictures out there. So uh, Carolina yeah, family is, is very special. I'm not a Carolina guy. I played one on TV as a CIO for seven years, but uh now that I've been in, in North Carolina for 23 years, uh, actually longer than I was in Seattle, starting to feel like home, although Seattle will always be home. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Mark, and taking the time for the audience, and uh, let, let's try to do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, Daryl. Be well. All right, all right. You too.